The New Testament scholar Francis Folks says that while it is common for Christians to pray upon bended knee, it was not so common for first century Jews like St. Paul. It seems that at the time of Jesus and the Apostles, the first century Jews would typically pray standing up, arms outstretched. They didn't bend their knee and kneel to pray like we do. Unless... Unless it was a matter of urgency, a matter of, of seriousness. Uh, folks says that when, when people would bend the knee to pray, it, it expressed to everyone deep emotion that they felt, the urgency that they felt in their prayers, their earnestness. When someone knelt to pray, it was a clear indication that they were begging God, they were pleading with God, entreating with all their vigor, their earnestness of God. If someone knelt to pray, it was a big deal. A very big deal. And yet that's exactly what St. Paul says he does in the Ephesian letter. Did you hear it this morning? Let me go back and just read this, uh, this line for you. He says at the beginning of the New Testament uh, uh, lesson on page 6 in your bulletin, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason I bow my knees. He's earnest in prayer. And we've all been there, haven't we? Usually when we get that desperate, um, it's for ourselves. <laughs> Something has happened and, and we need help. You know, we, we, we go to our knees and pray. I mean, maybe we opened up the mailbox and found out that we're a finalist in the Super Duper Sweepstakes. I don't know. I hear that I'm a finalist in the Super Duper Sweepstakes. You're not one too, are you? You are. Oh, no. And now I'm really going to pray. With all earnestness. You know, oh, Lord, if... If only I won that. Or, or maybe it's, if only I got this job. Or if only, if only she would say yes to my marriage proposal. Or if only he would ask me to marry him. Or, or if, if, only, if only we could have a baby. No one knows the earnestness like infertile couples. No one knows that earnestness of prayer quite that. If only, Lord, you would heal me of this awful disease. You know the thing, don't you? The thing that drives you to your knees, that makes you pray. The thing that, that you need God to come in and do something that only God can do. You know, that kind of God-shaped prayer where, where you have to get down on your knees and, and it's, I'm on my knees begging kind of, God, you have to act kind of prayer. But there are other times when, when we actually want something for someone else. In fact, we want something for someone else even more then maybe they want it for themselves. We want something for somebody more than they want it. Um, you know, maybe maybe you remember a friend maybe back in high school or maybe just last week. You know, whatever your world is, maybe you remember a friend who, who, who did, made these bad choices one after another after another and, and you prayed for that friend and, and you were earnest about that. You, you even tried to convince them and, and you needed God to step in and do something. Or maybe you've been in a place where you're responsible for somebody and, and your responsibility for them makes you care about them more than they care about themselves. I remember um, I was a university professor and so I had all these students and I taught this course, um, OT201, the Pentateuch. 
Okay? Every student, I don't care what it was the best thing about being in a Christian college, every student had to go through this course. I don't care if you were um, studying to be a, a school teacher or if you were studying to be a, a, a you know, in business, accountant, whatever. You had to come through me, which was kind of fun, you know? You know, we're all funnel in this direction. And, and so a study of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and... Oh, good. You've studied your Bible. Okay. And, and so I, I had all these students who, who had to come through there. And this was a serious academic pursuit. Okay, I wanted them to know that the Bible wasn't just a, a bunch of fairy tale, you know, pie in the sky. But this is real stuff, real life, real issues, you know, going back thousands of years. And, and, so, um, and so it was really a challenging course. I wrote the final, and, um, and I only got a 78 when I took it. Um, <laughs> My students didn't really get that joke. I'm glad you did, yeah. It was tough. It was challenging. But, but I knew it had to be to get them to studying, to work hard at it, not to, not to blow it off. I wanted them to know that the stuff that I was teaching them was the important stuff of life. You know, that, that I wanted it for them all, often more than they wanted it for themselves. Or maybe you're already ahead of me. Maybe you've been a parent. And you know that parents, they want for their kids something better than they had. I mean, you want for your... You don't even have to be a particularly good parent to want that your children's lives are better than yours, right? I mean, this is what being a parent means. I hear, I haven't experienced it yet, I hear that it carries on to the next generation. That even you want for your grandchildren more than you wanted for your your children. That there's a sense of love and, and wanting for someone else. Any parent who's seen their kid struggle, seen their kid, you know, make bad decisions or, or be just the victim of unfortunate circumstances or whatever the case may be, you know that earnestness that I'm going to get on my knees and pray to God for this child kind of earnestness, right? Anyone who's ever been a true friend to someone, anyone who's ever been a teacher, a, a decent employer, a parent, a grandparent, knows that there are times when you pray for someone else even with more earnestness than you pray for yourself. And that's the case in the Ephesian letter. This is what St. Paul is saying. He's writing to these Ephesian Christians and saying that he is praying for them with an earnestness even greater than that which he would pray for himself. He's praying on their behalf. You know, there are ancient copies of this letter that are, that are exactly the same. You know, back in, perhaps you know this, uh, back in the ancient world, there were no copiers, you know. People sat down with their hand. They, they were left-handed like me. They, they wrote them out, you know. They, they copied word for word. There are several copies of the Ephesian letter. Ancient, ancient copies. And some of them, most of them say, to the church at Ephesus. But there are some that say, Paul, an apostle to the church at Laodicea. It's interesting. The rest of the entire letter is exactly the same, but there's this one little difference to the church at Ephesus or the church of Laodicea. You see, this was Paul's only universal letter, the only letter he actually writes to the whole church. I mean, the other ones are the church at Rome or the church at Corinth or the church at Philippi. He writes to a person, Philemon, I want to talk to this fellow particularly, and to Timothy particularly. But this is a letter that Paul writes to the entire church. I think if we, found, if we were digging enough in sand, uh, uh, we could find maybe a letter to Pergamum or Thessalonica or wherever. There are these other copies probably of this same letter that exist. This is Paul's message to the church. And his main gist is this. 
Becoming a Christian is a really big deal. And it changes everything. It comes with responsibility. Imagine, just for a moment, that I went into my office and handed you the keys to my motorcycle. I don't think I'm going to do it. But just imagine that I did, you know. And, and I gave them to you and I said, you know, go have a good time. You know. It would come with responsibility. I would expect that you don't wreck my motorcycle, right? You know, I would expect that you, for your sake, that you don't wreck that motorcycle. But I would expect that it comes back kind of in one piece. That you talk to her nicely. Her name is Ruby. It really is. And that you're kind to that motorcycle. You know, that that you treat it. St. Paul was saying, becoming a Christian is a great thing. It's a gift. And it does come with responsibility. But halfway through the letter, he gets kind of sidetracked. And he says, you know what? I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. And I want this to be, I want you to understand just how much, just how how invigorated my prayer. But when he starts to do this, he gets a little sidetracked. His adjectives get many. The superlatives get thrown out there. And we sort of lose track of it. And and so it's a little bit unfortunate, but it's good because... You need me. Uh, it gives me job security. So just in the sake of job security, let's, will you take your bulletin and look with me at, um, at Ephesians chapter 3? In the very beginning of this letter, Paul says, or in the beginning of this section, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, look at this, here's what he's praying for, that He may grant you to be strengthened with power, through His Spirit, in your inner being. What are you praying for? I'm praying that the church, individually, would be strengthened in a way that all of you, Ephesian Christians, Laodicean Christians, Thessalonican Christians, Hudson Christians, would be strengthened inwardly. Now, you know what it means to be outwardly strong, right? People with big muscles who can lift heavy things. You know, if there's something big and heavy, you know, you, you find the strong person and ask that strong, you come move this heavy thing. Often I am called upon for just such a, um, you know, if, not really. I mean, yeah, I thought that was really good. I'm gonna, okay. um, often you, you, you look for the person who's strong. They can, what does it mean, though, to be inwardly strong? What does it mean to be, in, Paul says, to be strengthened in faith? That you would be rooted and grounded in love. To be strengthened in faith. Strengthened in the conviction that God is. That God exists. That God is is one who hears and answers prayer. Now let me say this. Faith is not certainty. Faith is not certainty. Not in the the intellectual, uh, epistemological sense of certainty. It's not certainty like, like you're certain that you're here right now. And you're certain that I'm what? Although this could all be a dream. A good dream, perhaps. But, you know, the sort of certainty that you have about, about, you know, the ground underneath your feet when you're walking. It's not that kind of certainty. It's sort of a certainty that you would have if you were on a rickety bridge. And you took a step. And you, you believed it was going to hold you. And you took another and took another and took another. Faith is a lot like love. You know it when you have it. But it's difficult to explain, it's difficult to measure, it's difficult to quantify, but it's real. So, so here's the question. Why, do, why does Paul pray that we would have such certainty? Why does he pray we would have inner strength? Verse 18, look down there with me again, right? He prays for this so that you may have strength to comprehend. 
He wants us to be able to comprehend. Notice this, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? Measurements. And to know the love of Christ. Look at this. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How can you know that which is unknowable? I want you to be able to grasp that which is ungraspable. (laughs) Is that a word? To comprehend that which is incomprehensible. I want you to experience inwardly the love of God. So that, verse 19, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's most desperate prayer for the church. St. Paul's most desperate prayer for the church. This this missionary of the church, this, this first apostle who goes to the Gentiles, his first and most desperate prayer is that we would not just be regular old Joes and Jims and Sallies and Barbers and whoever, but that we would be filled with the fullness of God, that we would be individuals who embody the life of God in the world. So we'd be like that four-year-old who's carrying a bowl of, 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 of soup or, or carrying a cup of water. You never give a cup of water to a four-year-old unless they're in the kitchen, right? Because what do they do? They have one speed. It's like, you know, supersonic speed. And you give them a glass of water and they run, you know, and, and it sloshes every... That's what Paul wants for us. He wants not that we slosh water everywhere, but that we would be so filled with the fullness of God that when we go into the world, when we go into our places of responsibility... It would just spill out here and there and everywhere on people all around us. There's a, a story that's told about this uh, 19th century violinist, uh, Niccolo Paganini. And Paganini was famous uh, in, in his day, a fantastic violinist in, in Italy. And, and, uh, and one day he's given this great concert, uh, said to be his, his greatest concert ever. And the auditorium is packed. He's a full orchestra. And he's, he's, uh, he's up there playing. His tone is perfect. I mean, he's right on, pitch perfect. It was the greatest night ever. But as he's playing, suddenly a string breaks on his Stradivarius. And he stops and he looks at it. And he kind of you know shrugs his shoulders, shakes his head, and continues playing the same number, but now with only three strings. The crowd went crazy. There was a roar. The, the people were up, they were amazed. Here's this great violinist playing this incredibly difficult number with only three strings. And then another string broke. And he gasped and began to play. And another string broke and he stopped. And he looked at his... Here he's holding this violin up in the air. Three strings hanging down loosely. Only one attached. But he didn't walk off stage. He stood his ground. He put the violin back up there. And Paganini started playing again. The the, the same piece, but with only one string. You know what? In life, only one thing really matters. Only one thing really matters. To be filled with the love of God. Because that will change everything. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.